Good morning, everyone. As we get started this morning, I don't see them here, but I want to ask you to be mindful of something this week. Uh, Stan and Amanda Scarborough are headed, I think, to Houston uh, to seek some uh, advice from some physicians in that area for their son, Banner. Banner has cystic fibrosis, remarkable young man, has been through all kinds of things and has the sweetest heart of just about any kid I've ever known. And so this is a pretty critical week because they've kind of reached an impasse where they aren't finding things that are helping him improve. And so they need to go to some specialists in Houston to hopefully find some uh, other interventions that might be possible for him. So I know Stan and Amanda would just be so encouraged to know that you're praying for them. So I'm going to ask you to do that this week. And if you think about it, maybe drop them a note. Um, It would be probably of great um, encouragement for them just to know that uh, they are on your mind. So, in fact, before we get started, why don't I just take some time to pray for Stan and Amanda and the family. Father, we think of uh, Stan and Amanda and uh, Banner. What a young man he is. Uh, He has been shaped in very good ways through the difficulties he's endured. And so would you just be with them as they travel, give them safety, I pray for the doctors that even now, as they're considering his case and things that they might be able to do, that there would be some very encouraging news that Stan and Amanda and Banner might receive. Give them peace in the midst of the uncertainties. And uh, may they know that they have a whole family back in Lubbock, Texas, who love them, who are praying for them, and who stand with them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, speaking of suffering, you can't help but notice as you follow David's life that his character is being shaped in the midst of suffering, which is pretty interesting to me because very often we do our best to avoid any pain and difficulty in our lives, don't we? We see suffering as the enemy when in fact it's one of God's greatest tools in our life. If if you'll look, David's failures did not happen when he was running in the desert. His most significant compromises took place in the comfort of the castle. You see, when we're desperate, very often that's where we learn to depend on God. When God is all we have, we find that really God is all we need. Suffering shapes our character and ultimately shapes our character to be more like Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 8, it says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. If you'll think closely about the life of David, you'll see that the very same thing is true for him. David is learning obedience through the things that he is suffering. Let me give you some examples from something that we've learned recently. Remember how he was grieved when he learned about the 85 priests who were killed by one of Saul's men. You remember that all that happened because David uh, told a story to Ahimelech that wasn't true. He said that he was being sent on a mission from Saul when in fact he was being hunted by Saul. It was a little white lie to get what he needed. Even if David was trying to protect Ahimelech, As Jason indicated last week, he was reckless. David was reckless, and he put Ahimelech's life at risk. 
So in turn, what happened was his compromise came back to bite him. Those who were killed were killed because of David's little white lie. We know that because David takes responsibility when he learns from Abiathar, the the single priest that did survive and escaped the slaughter. David turns to him and says, these people have died because of my mistake. David learned that even small little compromises can have devastating effects. In Gath, David learned that running to God is better than seeking refuge from the enemy. I have no idea in my own mind why David ran to Gath, the hometown of Goliath, the man that he killed. But apparently, maybe he thought that that all of Israel was against him, so maybe he would find some friends among the Philistines, which proved not to be the case, which is why he had to pretend like he was insane in order to escape that city. He ran to God as his refuge, quite frankly, because God was all he had. But David learned that you can trust in God always, but you can't always trust in man. In the cave of Adullam, David was surrounded by 400 miserable and malcontent men. (laughs) But David learns that the lost and discouraged can become some of your most loyal friends. Because when you're in the trenches together, when you're facing persecution together, it builds bonds of love that are ultimately unbreakable. In chapter 23, we'll find that those malcontent friends become mighty men of valor. To the point that they learn that there is an Israelite city that is being invaded by the Philistines. Even though he's being hunted by Israel's king, King Saul, David and his men step forward to defend Israel's people. He and his men, these 400 malcontents who have now become men of valor, defend that city and push the Philistines back. And after that battle, Abiathar takes the ephod of the priests to discern God's will as to what they should do next. And David and his men learned that the men that they just saved would turn and betray them and give them over to Saul. And so they run and flee. See, through that whole experience, David learns that even a small act of kindness in that promise to protect Abiathar, that in that act of kindness, Abiathar was the one who saved David and his men. You see, the desert has become like a classroom where David is a student and God is the teacher. David is learning obedience through what he suffers. He is learning to depend on God and he is finding that God is faithful. That's why he can write in Psalm 62, He, God alone, is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. And in him I will not be greatly shaken. I ran across a quote this week from an author who was kind of reflecting on David's life, and he says this. He says, the world does not need gifted men who are outwardly empowered. That's people like Saul. There's a long list of men like that going up into our present day. Instead, he says, what we need is broken men who are inwardly transformed. That's like David. That list is much shorter. 
And so my question to us this morning is, which list do we want to be on? Outwardly empowered or inwardly transformed? Very often, suffering is what shapes our character. And we're going to see that play itself out in our passage this morning. So let's go to the Lord before we do. Father, when we come to your word, we want to do so with humble hearts. We want to be teachable. We ultimately want to be broken men and women who are inwardly transformed. We see in our world around us that it's filled with gifted people who are outwardly empowered. And look what kind of shape we're in. What we really need is followers of Jesus Christ. People who are willing to sacrifice for the sake of others. Who are humble in heart. Inwardly transformed. God, could we ask this morning that you might use your word to shape our hearts, to change our character, to be more like Christ. We invite your spirit to be among us, to speak to us and change us because of the power of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. David is continuing to be on the run. We'll pick up in chapter 24, verse 1, where it says, Now it came about, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way, and where there was a cave, Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as seem goods to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him, because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. I have a great mental picture of this scene because we were able to go to En Gedi when we visited Israel. And it's a remarkable place. It's literally an oasis in the desert. I mean, it's scorched earth in the desert. There's not a living thing within sight. And then all of a sudden, in the crack of these rocks, you see a spring and a waterfall. And green little trees around it. And, and there's hundreds, literally hundreds of caves all around that area, which is a, a perfect place for people to seek shelter or to hide right next to that water source. So no surprise that this is where we might find David and his men hiding deep within the recesses of one of those caves. Well, while they're there, it just so happens that Saul steps in, it says, to relieve himself. Now, in the original text, the Hebrew for relieve himself literally means to cover one's feet. In other words, Saul has to go number two. Okay, that's what's going on here. He's going to drop trowel, take care of his business. And in the meantime, David and his men are hiding back in the recesses of his cave. And they're thinking to themselves, this is it. This is it. (laughs) This could not be more obvious. It's just as the Lord said, behold, I have given your enemy into your hands. Do to him as it seems good to you. 
Now, what's interesting is I find no evidence, none. I've looked really, really hard that God ever spoke those words to David and his men. I believe that this situation is so remarkable, so perfect, that everything is lining up so incredibly that they assume that this is too good to be anything but God's hand of provision. God set this up. And he's telling you to do to him as you would please. So, David takes their advice. He goes up and cuts the corner of Saul's robe and then slips back into the shadows. Saul finishes his business. David begins to think about what he just did. And his conscience is confronted. He's starting to feel guilty. And he begins to think and comes to the conclusion, no, 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 no. What I just did was not right. Now, you and I hear that and think, what's the big deal? He's cut off a little swath of his robe. I mean, there's no big deal. I don't see the problem. Why is his conscience so bothered by something so seemingly insignificant, right? Well, that's because we're not thinking about what that would have meant within that culture. In fact, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 27. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said, symbolically, this is what it means. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. And has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Here's what I want you to understand. When David tore Saul's robe, he was symbolically invalidating Saul's rule as king. David cut Saul's robe as a sign of rebellion against him. And his men, they were ready to fight. Look at verse 6. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this, this thing to my, to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. I think it's important as we consider these verses that we feel the tension of this discussion. It's as if David has poured gasoline on the firewood and when he turns around, all of his men are holding a match. His men are ready to light the fires of rebellion. A rebellion that begins with taking Saul out. But David has had a change of heart. It is not his place to destroy the Lord's anointed. In verse 7, it says that David persuaded his men. That's way too soft of a word. In the Hebrew text, it literally says, tore them up. David tore them up. He made sure they understood that we are not going to do God's will our way. We are not going to do what seems good to us. We are not going to do this because this is the Lord's anointed. 
we will do God's will, God's way, even if that means letting him stand up and walk out of this cave, which is exactly what he did. Look at verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, to this day I've seen the Lord and given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil, or there it is, rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life. To take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. Isn't this an amazing picture of seeing David bowing in honor before a king who seeks to kill him? He explains the events that took place in the cave and the temptation there was to take his life. If he had listened to his man, Saul would be a dead man by now. And the rebellion would have begun. But in his conscience, David knew that it was not right to rebel against Saul. Why? Because Saul is the Lord's anointed. And to rebel against the Lord's anointed is the same as rebelling against God why David says in verse 12, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. David is surrendering to the sovereignty of God. God's will, God's way. Let him decide. Now I want you to see Saul's response because it's really interesting. Look down at verse 16. Now it came about when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul wept. It's as if that same conviction that struck the heart of David has somehow reached the hard heart of Saul. He wept. He's weary from wrestling with God. He's probably tired of chasing David for what by this time has been years that he's been seeking his life. But David is saying, look Saul, you don't have to do that. I think there's a part of Saul that really does want to believe that that's true. Because look at what he says in verse 17. And he, Saul, said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will it not let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, 
I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Deep in his heart, Saul knew that David would one day be king. And maybe this whole experience reminded him of Samuel's prophecy when he tore Samuel's cloak. David has every right when he assumes that role as king to wipe out Saul's family. Why wouldn't he? I mean, they're all intent on killing him. That's who's chasing him. But David doesn't promise anything to Saul that he hasn't already promised to Jonathan. Remember, David and Jonathan made a covenant. And that covenant promised that he would do good to his descendants. Well, Jonathan is a descendant of Saul. That's his son. So David's not promising anything to Saul that he hadn't already promised to his son, Jonathan. Now, wouldn't it be nice if this were the end of the story and so they all went away and lived happily ever after? Well, That's not the case because as Jeremiah reminds us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And we are about to see that play itself out. So if you would turn over to chapter 26. We'll come back to chapter 25 next week, but we want to continue the story in chapter 26. So if you would, follow along with me in verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul in Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill? Of Achillah, which is before Jeshimon. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul camped in the hill of Achillah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out his spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. Boy, that was a short-lived remorse, wasn't it? Saul's already changed his mind. He's back in hot pursuit. He acknowledged the truth. But Saul never submitted to the truth. And so that truth didn't change his life. He's unwilling to surrender to God's will as long as he sees that there's a possibility that he could have his own way. When David saw him coming, He knew immediately the intent of Saul's heart. Look at how it continues in verse 5. So David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the camp by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying all around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. I will not strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, 
For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to that he dies, or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please, take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. Well, here we go again. Clearly, God has set this up. And he has given your enemy into your hands. And Abishai steps forward and says, please, let me do the honors. (laughs) I'll take the spear, stab him to the ground. It won't take two strokes. He'll be dead in one. But David said, no, that's God's will our way. No way. That's not how we do things. And he explains to Abishai, God will determine how Saul will live. I love it in verse 10. It's like he gives him a laundry list of options. He says, well, for example, um, he could die. He could be put to death by God. He could perish in battle. I don't know how... God is going to deal with Saul. But in this moment, I do know what is required of us to be faithful to God. So let's let God be God and determine how he will deal with Saul as the Lord's anointed. And let us be faithful in this moment to what God has called us to do. So take a spear, take that jug, and then let's walk out of here. David was learning obedience through his suffering, wasn't he? He didn't even pause on this one. There was no hesitation or consideration of compromise. He said, no, that's not how we do this. That's God's will our way. God is teaching him God's will, God's way, is the only way to live faithfully. So David takes his spear along with his jug, and they walk out of camp. And did you notice how they were able to pull this one off? Look again at verse 12. So David took the spear and the jug of water and beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake. Well, why did that happen? For they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. (laughs) So now we know. How David could just walk into this camp and be completely unnoticed, take care of what he was intending to do, and then walk out completely safe. God caused Saul and his men to fall into a deep sleep. See, the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul. And so Saul was not going to find David, even if he was standing right there next to him. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon David. And so his enemies weren't going to harm him, even if he stood in the midst of them. That's how God works. Look at verse 13. Then David crossed over the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance between, with a large area between them. And David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you? Who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die. Because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now, 
see where the king's spear is in the jug of water that was at his head. David condemns Saul's men for not guarding their king. His safety depends on their protection, and they have failed to do their job because the enemies just walked in and took his spear and jug and walked right out with no one noticing. That spear was a symbol of his power. That jug was a a symbol of his sustenance. And really, by condemning his men, Saul is... Or David is condemning Saul because Saul is relying on those men for his safety, not God. Saul is listening to the counsel of those men, not God. Their unwillingness to trust in God has put all of their lives at risk. So look at how he continues in verse 17. Then Saul recognized David's voice and says, Is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, the king. He also said, why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? What evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let the Lord, the king, listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred up you against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men cursed as they are before the Lord, for they have driven me out today and I should have no attachment with their inheritance with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go and serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. You know, as I look at this, I love how David always leaves room for his own sin. Did you notice that he says, look, if you're pursuing me because of God's judgment, then let me ask for forgiveness. Let me offer a sacrifice. He's basically saying, look, if this is my fault, if the reason you are after me is because you're following God's direction to pursue me, then let me be forgiven by offering a sacrifice before the Lord our God. But if you are pursuing me because of the counsel of men, then you're all being led by sin. He basically gives David a choice, or Saul a choice, and he says, look, it's one of two things. Either God is directing you, or men are misleading you. Which one is it, Saul? Either God is directing you, or men are misleading you. Which one is it, Saul? I think there's a good chance that David really does want to see Saul recognize the error of his ways. Saul's men are not encouraging him towards faith in God. They're not seeking to do what's right in God's eyes. In fact, there's no evidence that these men have faith in God at all. And yet, these are Saul's most trusted men. Saul has surrounded himself with all the wrong people, and they are leading him astray. Either God is directing you, or your men are misleading you. Saul, you need to decide. Which one is true? Saul knows which one is true. Look at verse 21. Then Saul said, I've sinned. Return my son David, for I will not harm you again. Because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool, and I've committed a serious error. And David answered and said, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of your young men come over and take it. 
And the Lord will pay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today. But I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. You will be glad to know this is the last time that Saul and David will ever meet. This is where it ends between the two of them. They will never encounter each other again. After years of endless pursuit, at this point in time, Saul finally gives up the chase. During this time of great suffering, David has learned how to obey. He's a broken man who is increasingly inwardly transformed. He's learning to trust in the Lord. He even says it in this passage that he will deliver me from all my distress. God's will, God's way. That's the lesson that David has learned. Now I want us to see how this plays itself out in the New Testament. So if you would, go ahead and turn over to uh, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Very familiar passage looking at the temptation of Jesus. And we're going to see a direct connection from what we learned in our passage in Samuel and what we're going to see here in Matthew. So follow along with me. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter, Satan, had said to him, Well, if you're hungry, Son of God, or if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. For he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil said, took him to a a holy city and, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, well, if you are the son of God, then throw yourselves down, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you on their hands. They will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. I want us to see the connection here because the temptation of of Jesus in the wilderness is Satan's effort to tell him to do God's will his way, Satan's way. If you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Instead of trusting in God's provision, do your own thing. If you can, then you should. God's will, my way. And Jesus refuses. He says, God's word reveals God's will. And that's the only way that I will choose to live. He even says in his ministry that I do nothing with my own initiation. Everything I do is based on a response of God's guidance. He will show me the way. God's will, God's way. Well, Satan thought he'd be crafty. And so he says, well, if that's what God's word says, it also says that his angels will protect you. So why don't you jump off of this very high place And let's we'll test it. See if it's true. 
But Jesus said, no, that's not how it works. I do not test what I already know to be true. God is faithful, and my life is always under his hand of protection. I don't have to jump off of this building to know that's true. Satan probably gets a little bit of a grin on his face because he thinks Jesus just slipped up. He thinks there might be a path that he can take to convince him. So he shows him essentially all the people of the world, all their kingdoms, all their neighborhoods, all their homes, all the people of the world because Satan is the prince of the world. And people live under the influence of his power. And here's what he's offering Jesus. I'll give you a share of that power without the pain of the cross. You can have the whole world. Just so long as you do it my way. It's a little bit of a tempting option. (laughs) The whole world without the cross. But that's why Jesus says, no, that won't work. God says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. So be gone, Satan. I'm done playing games with you. Jesus validated his commitment to follow God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he say? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus sacrificed his life in order to set us free. God's will, God's way, is the only way that we can be saved. How many of you uh, were at the Parkridge Banquet this last week? Raise your hand. Good. So you had a chance to hear Louis Giglio speak. Did a great job is what I understand. And great man. Well, this past Sunday, our small group took the opportunity to listen kind of to the expanded version of that message that he gave at Park Ridge, where he's talking about uh, having a seat at the table among your enemies, right? One of the things that he said that he might have mentioned in his talk with Park Ridge that, that God doesn't remove us from our difficulties. <laughs> when he made that promise, he didn't say that I'll take you from all the pain and all the suffering and, and we'll go over to happy land where all of that stuff goes away and it's just me and you. He says, no, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit at the table in the midst of all the chaos. I'm going to show you how to depend on me through the difficulties and the suffering. That was convicting to me because I don't know about you, but I find myself at times fantasizing about happy land, (laughs) right? Happy land where my kids are amazing, they're successful, my job is fulfilling, I have absolutely no relational conflict. In happy land, I don't struggle with depression, I have no fear, no anxiety. I like the idea of happy land. Happy land is the good life, and surely the good life is God's will, right? The good life is God's will my way. It's the place where everything lines up just like I think it should. (laughs) And wasn't that the mistake of David's men? We're going to look at this one more time. Turn to chapter 24 again and look at verse 4. This is way too important for us to miss this. Chapter 24, verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Behold, 
This is the day which the Lord said to you. Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Earlier I said, I don't find a place where God ever made that promise, and I hold to that. But as men said, uh, they're quoting God. They said, which the Lord said to you. I'm going to take it a step further. And I'm going to tell you that I believe that this is an example of false prophecy. And the reason I'm convinced that that's true is because God has never, nor will he ever say to you and I, do what seems good to you. Do what seems right in your eyes. God would never say that because it's the root of all sin. Doing what's right in our own eyes. God did not tell David and his men this. This is a false prophecy. Because God would never tell any of us. That we all need to learn. And so, just a couple of quick things that I think we can pull out of this, just to practically apply to our lives to fulfill that commitment. Three things. First one is this. Don't put words in God's mouth. Rule number one of doing God's will, God's way, is don't put words in God's mouth. Don't reinterpret Scripture to do it to, for whatever seems right to you. Don't pull it out of context to make it say what you want it to say. Take God at His word, which means you got to know God's word. You got to know God's word. And let me tell you, the less time you spend in this book, the greater the chance of you believing lies. Because this is where truth is found. Don't put words in God's mouth. He's already said everything he needs to say, and it's right here. So if we want to do God's will God's way, then we live according to these truths. Number two, don't be too quick to presume you've made the right choice. Don't be too quick to presume you've made the right choice. You see, David reacted impulsively by following the advice of his men. It was bad advice. And had he not stopped to think, this is a whole different story. Saul's a dead man at the hands of David and his men. But David took time to stop and think about what he just did. His conscience was confronted, and he realized that was the wrong thing. And so my encouragement to you is give God a chance to redirect your path. When you walk in an effort to try to do God's will, don't presume that the first choice is the last choice and that that sets you on a course that you never have to change. I would suggest that each of us pray after we take one step. And this is the prayer. God, would you confirm or redirect as I continue down this path? God, would you confirm or redirect as I continue down this path? God, would you confirm or redirect as I continue down this path? See, I don't trust myself to make one decision and assume that I've got the right to make all the decisions from that point on. I need to be prayerful. I need to be patient. I need to be uh, uh, patient and prayerful. I just need to trust that God will show me the way and that I can consider the steps along the way as I try to follow him. 
See, the only thing worse than a wrong decision is making another wrong decision because you never stop to think about the first decision. So don't be too quick to presume you made the right choice. And I'll say this too as it relates to that scene with David and his men. Don't be so quick to assume that when everything lines up, then it's God's blessing in your life. Just as we shouldn't be so quick to assume that God's punishing us when we're going through hard times. Neither one of those are necessarily true. So wait upon the Lord. Don't be too too quick to presume you've made the right choice. But at the same time, you should be quick to repent when you've made the wrong choice. Did you notice how quickly David turns? In that moment of time between him cutting the robe, stepping back into the shadows, immediately he began to think, no, 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 no. We're not going to do this. That was the wrong decision. He didn't wait for it to play out. He didn't ask his men and see how others might respond. He had a strong conviction followed by a quick action. What I did was wrong. I will not do what seems good to me. That's God's will, my way. This is the Lord's anointing. I will only do God's will, God's way, even at great risk to myself. Bowing on the ground in front of a king who seeks to take your life is a great risk. But doing God's will, God's way, was more important than preserving his own life. You'll notice that David trusted in God's providence, even when he didn't understand how he might carry it through. Saul could die. He could be struck by the Lord. He could be killed in battle. I have no idea. But what I do know is what it looks like to be faithful in this moment. I'll let God be God and take care of his part, and I'll be faithful and take care of my part. God's will, God's way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you that you don't leave us to ourselves, that we don't have to go and do what seems good to us and hope that we did the right thing. (laughs) What a terrible thing that would be. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves but for guiding us, for directing us, for leading us, for loving us, for giving us your truth. Lord, help us to be compelled to know what it says. Help us to be compelled to be prayerful and patient, to not presume that we've made the right choice, but to just seek your guidance each step of the way. Lord, would you confirm or redirect? Would you confirm or redirect? I'm going to be patient. Because it's more important for me to do what's right in your eyes than it is for me to have my own way. Lord, may we be willing, as Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done, but your will be done. God's will, God's way. That's how we want to live, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a good day.